are in a, a new series called New Beginnings here at the church. And so I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, if you have your Bible, I want you to go to John chapter 3 real quick as we kind of jump into the scriptures and, and learn what it is that God hopefully wants to teach us this morning. Um, this series is, is really a, a, a vision-based series for us as a church. This is the, the, the type of series that for us helps us more clearly define who we are, what we believe God has purposed us as a church to do. How many know like there's a lot of different churches out there and they have different styles and, and maybe they have different emphasis and different things going on. And I'll just be honest with you. This is the emphasis that I think God has given us. When I look at, at, at who's drawn to us and what we do well and, and what God has gifted us and blessed us to do, this is what I really, really believe. I really believe that God has put us into this city, into this town, into this community to be a place where people find new beginnings in Jesus. I don't know what other churches, they have different emphasis, different, but I just know that people walk in this door. Most of the people that walk in this door are either unchurched or de-churched. And there's a difference, is there? Like, like how many of you ever been out there and felt a little bit de-churched? Turned off, turned away, didn't want much to do with it, didn't feel like you fit other places, didn't feel like you measured up in other places, or you just were away from God. So, so we, we feel like we're a place, and even for all people of different walks, like you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, but sometimes you just need a fresh start and a new beginning in life. And so what we wanted to share with you during this series is this, is that we believe that Jesus is all about new beginnings. That when you walk through the life of Jesus, that what you'll find is that his interactions with people are trying to get them a new beginning in life. This is what we've all also discovered is that when we look at people, when I examine my life and every life that I've ever seen come into my office or have a conversation with, is that we as people are all looking for what? We're looking for a new beginning. At some point in our life, we're, we're just looking for a clean slate and some forgiveness and some mercy and, and, and a new start on life. This is why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says that if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become what? New. God's trying to make you a new creation. He's trying to give you a new start. And, and this is what we believe as a church is that we're to be the conduit, that we're to be the ones that create the environment for a new beginning in people's lives. And so last week we looked at a man who literally was a beggar. He was a blind man. And for 30 some odd years he begged because that was all that he had. And Jesus shows up in his life and completely changes his future. Today we'll look at a completely different story. It's fascinating because when you look at the spectrum of who Jesus hangs out with and who he talks to, sometimes you can get the idea that Jesus only hangs out with or only helps really, really dysfunctional people, which is good for most of us, right? But some of us are, are in this place and we would think, well, well no, I, I've actually been successful in life and I'm doing pretty well and I, I, I think I've done well for myself and I got a lot of things going for me. Exactly why do I need Jesus? In John chapter 3, we see the reason why, because he addresses a man who's incredibly well-off, incredibly affluent, incredibly successful at the highest ranks of society. He says, you too, because it's proof that the lowliest of the lows, we need Jesus, and the highest of the highs, we need Jesus too. And here's, I read an interesting article. It was a, it was a person who is, is real well-known. They're kind of like a news pundit and commentator and, and very successful at what they do. And they gave an interview. And they actually wrote an article in Christianity Today describing their conversion. And when she describes her conversion, she says something really fascinating that struck me. She said, when I didn't know God and I, I had no clue of who Jesus was, she goes, I didn't think my life was awful. She goes, as a matter of fact, I thought my life was pretty good. I enjoyed life. I thought it was pretty fun. She goes, but there's something interesting about that. She goes, because once I discovered Jesus, it was like my eyes were open. Because sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Sometimes you're blissfully lost. 
and you don't know that you're lost, and you, you don't know that it could be better, you don't know that something might be broken, you don't know that something might be missing. And so Jesus, in John chapter three, meets with a gentleman like that, who, who he sees something in Jesus, but he's not quite sure he's all that broken. Let's, let's read together. The Bible says, in John chapter three, verse number one, it says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We've been watching, we've been observing, and we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could, could perform these signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So here you go, Jesus in John chapter 3 is having an interaction with a man who the Bible says is a Pharisee. Everybody say Pharisee. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that in the Gospels, at least, the life of Jesus, the Pharisees always are bad people, Right? They're the people that he rebukes, that he gets on, that he doesn't like. These are the, here's what you need to know about this. The Pharisees weren't all bad. The Pharisees get kind of painted a bad picture because when you hear Jesus rebuking these people, he's rebuking the hypocrites that are amongst this group. The reality is, is that if, if, if Jesus were compared to any other group in society, he would be most compared to the Pharisees. So the word Pharisee literally means separated. These were a group of people who were highly, highly, highly devoted to religious life and religious leadership. And so because of this, these people study the Bible adamantly. I'm talking about, these are people who at children are raised to memorize the first five books of the Bible during primary school. I mean, these are people that, that go on and study the scriptures their entire life, and they become the religious leaders. Not only do they study the Bible, they study something in their culture that was called the oral Torah or the oral law. See, they believed that not only was there the written scriptures, but there were these, um, basically the, the oral Torah was the commentary that was handed down by all the different people. They believed that Moses handed down all these kind of verbal ideas and passed them along verbally through generation to generation. So they eventually collected these in a book. This is what we call the tradition of the elders. So when you, when you find Jesus getting mad at folk, what he's usually railing against is these people. Because what they did was, is they took what God made holy, the Bible, and then they started adding to it. Does that make sense? Now how many know, like when you start adding stuff to the Bible, there's a good chance you're going to get into trouble. That's how you end up with kind of weird ideas out there. It's like, that's why we don't read the Bible alone in a closet. You can come up with all kinds of goofy stuff. And so... They, they formed these ideas, and what they did was they really wanted to protect the Bible because they loved the Bible so much. And when they loved the Bible so much, they decided it has, you got to remember the Bible has 600 different laws in the Old Testament, right? But they wanted to add laws on top of laws. So, for example, like to honor the Sabbath, they came up with 39 rules that you couldn't break so that you wouldn't even get close to breaking the Sabbath law. Does that make sense? This is like what you do with your kids. You know, like, you, you don't want your kids running around with a potty mouth and, and cussing, right? Well, I hope. So like, so, like, this would be the idea of saying, you can't say shoot. Because if you don't say shoot, you would never say that, that other word. And you can't say darn. Because if you never say darn, then you'll never even close to say, you know, the other word. I could keep going on now, but we'll see. So, so, so it's the equivalent of, and they called it the fence. Everybody say the fence. They literally called the oral Torah the fence. And what they thought was it was a hedge or a fence that protected what they believed was most sacred. So like they just wanted to make sure that everything was done so meticulously well that they added rules on top of rules on top of rules. So one of their rules was is that not only did you have to tithe, but if anything came to you from a non-tither, you had to tithe on that too. 
Does that make sense? So this is, they even tithe off their spices. So like if you had a spice garden in your backyard, they would tithe off the spices. But see, Jesus kind of rebukes them at one point. He says, look, look, you guys are so uptight about every little minute detail that you can add on top of God's holy word. He said, but you've forgotten actually what the weightiest parts of God's word are, word are which is justice and mercy. This is why Jesus rebukes him and he says, he says, you've got this racket going on in the church where you talk people into giving their inheritance to the church. And so that way, you know, when, when, when your parents get old, you don't have to take care of them anymore because you've dedicated all your money to the church. Therefore, you can't actually provide for your family anymore. He goes, what is wrong with you? Like, when do we stop loving people? When do we stop taking care of our own family for crying out? So, so he he rebukes them. And so you see that Jesus rebuked the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, but inside the Pharisees, there were some good folks. As a matter of fact, the two people that buried Jesus were Nicodemus, the guy we're reading about now, and another guy named Joseph of Arimathea, both of which were Pharisees. These guys not only were meticulous about the law, they, they actually made sure that everyone fasted twice a week. This is why Jesus says, no, we don't have to fast twice a week. Like, it's good, go for it, but this isn't a law. And he rebukes them. He, he basically tears down all of these add-ons that they had made, and then what they had done is this. They'd made it really, really difficult for people to connect to God. They just made it hard. Like, I, I, I'm just trying to find some mercy. I'm just trying to find forgiveness, and I, now I gotta do all these rules on top of the rules that God has? Like, holy cow, this is, I don't even know that I wanna sign up for this. How I many know, like, that's not a thriving, probably, religion. When you just keep adding rules on top of rules, I don't know that you thrive as a community. And so Jesus shows up to talk to this guy, and listen to what he says. He goes, we know that you're, you've come from God. Nobody can do what you do. And Jesus replies to him. He goes, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Born again. How many of you are familiar with that term? How many know that term's kind of gotten a bad rap now, doesn't it? It's kind of a Christian cliche now. It's something that like for, for decades now preachers have used. And you, you got to be born again. Are you born again, brother? Are you born again? Do you need to get born again? If you're not gonna, if you're not born again, you're gonna go to hell. And we got these born again things. Hey, look, I'm all for born again, but you know what I want to do today? I want to rediscover what born again actually meant. Because while in Christianity for the last few decades we keep telling people they need to be born again, I would say most of us don't even know what it means. And do you realize this? Jesus only said it once. In all of his conversations, and all of his teachings, the only time born again is ever mentioned is right here. One time to one particular man. Everybody say a Pharisee. A guy who not only was a Pharisee, the Bible says that he sits on the ruler of the council. Basically, they had a, a government body inside of their Jewish culture called the Sanhedrin, and they basically were the judges of all of community and society. And so this guy is incredibly smart, this guy knows the Bible incredibly well. He's incredibly pious. He follows all the rules or he'd be kicked out of the system. He's reached incredible levels of status. And Jesus says, you, you need to be born again. Now, real quick, here's why Jesus told that man in particular that he needed to be born again. In their culture and in their day, they had discovered something and something this Pharisee had no doubt talked about and discussed and read and studied. And it was this truth this axiom, if you will, in Hebrew culture, and the axiom went like this. The axiom was that firstborns received, let's get it on the screen. Is that firstborns receive, everybody say justice, and the secondborns receive, okay, I'm gonna tell you why this is so important. See, they looked at the scripture and they had seen a pattern all throughout scripture. 
And the pattern in the Bible was, is that anytime you see a kid who is a firstborn, you always see him falling under the, the, the lines of justice and judgment. And anytime you see secondborns, meaning anybody not first, anybody that could have been second, third, fourth, fifth born, that they always seem to find, everybody say mercy. Now, how many real quick are firstborn children in your family? Your firstborn children? I just want you to know I feel sorry for you. This is all kinds of bad for you. How many of your secondborns out there, you're like me, you're a second, yeah, let's give the Lord a big hand clap this morning. We get mercy. All you firstborns, we are so sorry and we will pray for you after service today. Okay, I'm gonna show you that's not completely true. Let me show you in scripture what what I mean by this. Everybody say firstborns, justice. Secondborns, mercy. Listen to this. So, So when you read the Bible, this is what they began to see. So for example, when Noah gets on the boat with all the animals, and we have all the kids' songs, it's a cute little story, actually God destroys the world. Um, they get off the boat. Do you remember though he took his, th- his wife and his three sons and their wives, right? Their kids' names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Aren't you glad you didn't get named Ham? Can you imagine the amount of picking on you would have had in school? So your name's not Ham, thank God, but these kids were named Shem, Ham and Japheth. Well, here's the story of what really, really happened. After Noah gets off the boat, the Bible says that he builds a vineyard. And vineyards are for what? Yeah, for making wine. And what happens when you have too much wine? Yeah. What happens when you get drunk? You do stupid things. Yeah, you know. How did you know? We could, hey, you know, like old school church where people like share testimonies? So we could go, anyway. So, so, so he gets into a vineyard, he has too much wine, he gets drunk, and what do you do when you're drunk? You do stupid things. This is why God tells you you don't get drunk, because you, you lose your mind. So, so he actually, there's not a lot of children in here, is there? I don't see any children. Okay. He gets naked. The Bible says that he uncovers himself, he, he's so inebriated that he gets drunk and passes out. Now, how do you know that'd be weird to find your dad in that situation? But that's exactly what happened in the Bible. Look, I'm just a Bible teacher. You, 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 you send your emails to God. Um, so Ham finds his dad, bucket naked, passed out, and instead of covering him up, he goes and tells everybody about it. How do you know that's not gonna go good at dinner time that night? So, but his brothers, the Bible says that his brothers, and it's so specific about how it's written, actually get a blanket, walk in backwards so that they cannot see their father's nakedness and lay the blanket down. When dad wakes up, he's like, oh, what happened here? And he starts asking questions. He finds out that his son actually uncovered and exposed his nakedness. So his dad curses him, which is the equivalent of like a spiritual whooping. So he curses him. Now, here's the problem, though. The Bible says that Ham does not receive the curse. You ever think about, how, like, how does that work? No, I don't take it. You know, I, I, <laughs> what do you do? I don't receive that. Here's why he couldn't receive the curse. It's because he was not a firstborn. He was a secondborn. And secondborns don't receive justice. They receive what? So when, when Ham has a son, he has his firstborn son, and the Bible says that the firstborn son ends up cursed. Why? Firstborn. Because firstborns receive mercy. Look, all throughout the Bible, we, we, I, listen, Joseph, in the Bible, there's a huge story about Joseph. Remember the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then his son, he's got like 11 of them. His 11th born son is a guy named Joseph, right? So is Joseph a firstborn or a secondborn? 
Second born, right? Well, Joseph does something he, he probably shouldn't do. He calls a big family meeting, which was the job of the firstborn son. He should have done that. And then he proceeds to tell a family about the dream that God's given him. By the way, which the dream is, I'm standing and you're bowing. You guys are gonna serve me later on in life. Again, how does that go over at dinner time later? Not really well. It's not the, you just keep that dream to yourself is what I'm telling you. And so the Bible says that his brothers, because they hated him, devised a plan to kill him. They actually dig a pit, throw him into the pit, and then decide to go eat lunch. Yeah, your family's not that bad, is it? See, you thought, you're, you thought your family was bad. They're not that bad. So anyway, they devised a plan to kill him. They throw him in a pit and then go have sandwiches. And then while they're discussing uh, uh, how to kill him over lunch, one of the brothers named Reuben pipes up and says, hey guys, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery instead. Why did Reuben step up and say that? Because Reuben was the firstborn son and he knew that if this got found out that he would receive the judgment for his brother's murder. And how many know, we, we know firstborns get what? Justice and secondborns get, get mercy. So he said, no, 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 we don't wanna do this. So again, he's the one that, that changes that up. Listen, he, he, here's another one. So there's, in, in the law, when, when God sends um, the plagues against Egypt, the 10th the and final plague, was, to, was the what? Does anybody remember? It was the killing of the firstborn. It was because Pharaoh was so hard in his heart, he wouldn't let God's people go. God pleaded and pleaded and pleaded and, and, and basically just kept telling him, it's coming. If you don't let him go, it's coming. So the, 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 the 10th and final plague was the killing of the firstborn. In the Levitical law, there was a law that said that whenever you had a flock or a herd, that you killed the firstborn and that the killing of the firstborn would redeem the entire flock. Why? Because firstborn, so do you see how like as a Pharisee, you're seeing all this stuff take place? All throughout scripture, you realize firstborns, wow. Hey, you ever heard the story about like the double portion? You ever been to a Pentecostal church and said, mm-hmm, you need a double portion? Charismatic churches, you need a double portion? You don't want a double portion. The double portion always went to the firstborn son. The reason why it went to the firstborn son was because the firstborn son had to judge over all of his family. They also had this rule inside of family. See, this is Eastern culture. This is way different. Like, white people, we kick our family out. Different color, y'all are different. White people, we kick our family out. Not them, though. They, they, they had a rule that actually said that they had to receive their family in. So this is what would happen. Like, if I'm the firstborn son, and I've got, like, six brothers underneath me that are all second born son. If they die, I have to adopt their wife or wives in their day. You gotta remember they, they had on average like three or four wives each. I had to adopt their wives and all them ugly kids. <laughs> so do you see why I need a double portion of the inheritance? The double portion was so I could pay for them kids. Can you imagine, what if, what, if you're all your, what if all your brothers are out on like a hunting expedition and a tiger eats them all, and then all of a sudden you're stuck with six times, so you've got 24 wives now. Holy cow, I got one, that's more than enough. You know, that's more than I can handle. Guys, can I get amen like one is enough? But you got 24 wives and then X number of kids to go with it. That double portion wasn't so you could get a Corvette, that was so you could go to Walmart and pay for some diapers. That, that's why you needed a double portion. It wasn't something you wanted. It was something as a second born you appreciated if you didn't have it. Second borns 
receive mercy. When you look at, as a matter of fact, if you go read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the lifeline and the bloodline of Jesus, do you notice that all the men in the, in the bloodline are second-born sons? Think about that. Think Isaac, second-born son. Ishmael was the first son. Isaac was the second-born son. Isaac has two kids. He has Esau and Jacob, and Jacob is the second-born son. As a matter of fact, Esau is the one that cursed his birthright and is considered an evil and wicked person in the New Testament because of that, because he received what? Justice. He received the judgment of God. But Jacob and all of his screws up, what did he get? Mercy. Uh, think about this. So, so David is a part of the bloodline of Jesus. We know that David was one of the little runts of the family that everybody disregarded and didn't even want around. He was the cheese delivery boy. That was his job. That's how he showed the whole thing with David and Goliath. You know why he showed up there? He wasn't in the army. He wasn't a military guy. He was the cheese delivery boy. He was the runt of the family. And so God, God uses him to be in the bloodline of Jesus. Think about this. David becomes king. David has a huge major screw-up with a woman named Bathsheba and has an adulterous affair where he murders her, her husband. They have a son. Their firstborn son dies. Firstborns receive justice. They have a secondborn son. His name is Solomon, who becomes the wisest man who ever lived because secondborns receive mercy. Do you see, do you see, what, do you see what Nicodemus saw? See, in the Bible, there's this tension between justice and mercy. Does that make sense? Think about it. One rabbi said it like this. He said, there has to be both justice and mercy together at the same time. If God was only merciful, the world would run rampant with sin. But if God was only justice, he would have to destroy the earth. You have to have both. And when God holds both, the world can endure. And so there's this constant balance of justice and mercy, of justice and mercy all throughout the Bible. It's just the way that they saw scripture. It was the way that they saw life. And how many know we are people who are in need of what? Mercy. I said all that to get to this main point. Why did Jesus tell Nicodemus that he needed to be born again? It's because he was a Pharisee. Pharisees only made up about 2% of the population and they were all firstborns. So Jesus is having a conversation with an incredibly successful, well-off, influential, affluent, firstborn son. He said, Nicodemus, you know what you need? You need to be born again. Let's read it again. So the Bible says that Jesus in verse three says, you need to be born again. In verse number four, notice that he doesn't give a rebuttal. He's trying to figure out how. So watch this. He goes, how can someone be born when they are old? What he was saying was this, is, I, I, I get you. I'm with you on that. I would love to, but how do I pull this off? Because I'm really old. You can't just jump back into your mom's womb. So Nicodemus asked this and he says, surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at this saying, you gotta be born again. You know what I'm talking about is what he's saying. He goes, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is every, with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus just, uh, how can this be? How, how are we gonna pull this off? Because I'm with you. I don't want the devil portion. I don't want judgment. I don't want justice. I am all on board with being born again. How do I sign up? 
What Jesus was trying to help Nicodemus understand was is that he needed to move Nicodemus from a position of justice and judgment to a position of mercy, which is what a new beginning is all about. Let me tell you one more story. One more story out of the New Testament or the Old Testament that emphasizes this idea. Remember I said firstborns receive what? Secondborns receive what? Listen to this story now. Again, Old Testament, this is how they figured this out. The Bible says, and it came to pass at the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in the womb of this woman named Tamar. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one kid put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Everybody say first. Do you get why this is important? You gotta figure out who that firstborn kid is because they got it coming, right? Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name is called Perez, which means the breaker, the breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name is called Zerah. Here's, here's the amazing story that you just saw unfold. Is that the younger brother takes the place of the older brother. Here's a question. Who is Jesus called in the New Testament? Paul is teaching in the book of Romans and Corinthians and he starts describing how all of mankind came from the seed of Adam and that Adam was the firstborn and through the firstborn came sin. But then came Jesus who took the place of Adam and took on all sin. Listen Now in light of everything we just said, listen to the scripture. Romans chapter eight, verse 29. For those God foreknow, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the what? Firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Colossians 1.15, the Bible says that Jesus is the son. He is the image of the invisible God, the what? The firstborn over all creation. Here, here, here's what you and I all want. We want Jesus to stick his hand out and assume the responsibility of the firstborn so that you and I can step back and take the position of the secondborn. And this is what Jesus did when he died on the cross. As he said, Nicodemus, you get a new beginning. All your life you've been a firstborn. All your life you knew that you received judgment and you received justice. But here's what happens. When you allow me to die on the cross in the place for your sins and you receive mercy and forgiveness, you step back. You let me become the firstborn and you need to become the secondborn. In your new beginning in Jesus, what he's really trying to get you is this, and I wrote it down, it's real simple. In your new beginning, God wants to give you a new position of mercy. He's trying to wipe your slate clean. He's trying to say that you don't have to pay. I'll pay. You don't have to take all the judgment. I'll take all the judgment. Because the firstborn receives judgment. The firstborn receives justice. The secondborn, they get mercy. And I want you to become a second born. Everybody say, I like this born again thing. I think I'll take it. It sounds better than the way it was presented to me the first time. I like it now. I'll take it. Here's why this is so important. Here's why I tell you this. Because I actually, I think I shared this, this big thought years and years ago. It's from a friend of mine. This is why I want to talk to you about it today. Is because as you and I step into our new beginning, we get a new position of what? Mercy. 
What did I tell you that everything that we, we, we read the scripture and we see where this church is, is, is in terms of what God has done in it, we believe that Jesus is all about new beginnings. We believe that what people need is a new beginning in life. And we believe that as a church, we are to be the conduit. We are the ones that hopefully created an environment where heaven and earth collide. That we are the ones that, here, this is what this really means now, is that you and I should become dealers in mercy. You and I should be the people of mercy. I'll tell you why this became so important for me. A couple years ago, I had a change and a shift in my mind from the way that I perceived my relationship with God. This is what I mean. When I was a, a, a brand new believer, I believed adamantly that I should pray, that I should go to church, that I should give, that I should study the scriptures, that I should absolutely worship and be in tune with God and all that stuff. Is it true? It's true. But I missed the mark on some other things because I believe my relationship with God was primarily vertical, meaning my relationship with God was very, very personal. It was about me and my relationship with God and God and him speaking to me and me and praying to God and then God answering my prayer and me worshiping God and then God filling my life with his presence and me doing this towards God and God doing this towards me and on and on and so forth. And I thought this is what it means to be connected to God. And then I started to read the Bible differently a couple years ago. Have you ever... Have you ever just realized like some stuff you just didn't know because you weren't ready yet? Hey, here's a thought. Do you remember when you were a little kid and your parents would talk about you at the dinner table, but you were too young to understand what they were saying? You, you ever had, like, like, you're sitting there and you're a little kid and your parents are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this little one needs to go to BED. And you're like, man, I know what they're talking about. They're talking about me, but I don't know that I'm down with this whole BED thing. I don't know what... I don't know what that is. I don't think I'm gonna like it, but I don't know what it is. And, and what you're doing is, is there's information around you, but you're too young to understand it. Your brain can't quite figure, your heart's not ready for it. Here's what I, I realized is that uh, it was just two, three years ago, I began to see the Bible. I just, I don't know if I wasn't ready for it. I don't know if I just did. I don't know what the block was. But it was as if I read the scripture and something just came out BED and I couldn't put that together yet. When I read the Bible, what I began to see was is that although, yes, my relationship with God is vertical, but just as much as it is vertical, God wants it to be horizontal. That, here's, here's the radical thing. Do you know that God, I think even more than all of this stuff really, really wanted was for me to be more about some of this stuff here. And not lose this, but to actually, because of this, get here. Let, let, me, let me explain the, what, what I mean here. Um, when you read the Ten Commandments, have you ever noticed that in the Ten Commandments, like this is the big ten. Like God's like, I'm gonna reduce it to like ten. It's gotta be pretty big, right? Do you know that never in there do you find anything about ritual? You never find anything about Passover. You don't find anything about circumcision. You don't find anything about some of the personal particulars of your relationship with God. Don't get me wrong, it's like love God and don't serve idols. Yeah, But now here, 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 in light of that, Here's how I want you to treat other people. We don't lie about other people. We don't commit adultery. We don't, we don't steal. We don't murder. We don't bear false witness because how we treat other people matters to our Heavenly Father. You're, you're, you, I promise. I'll get there. Listen to this. Micah chapter 6. Micah's having a conversation with religious people and he's prophesying against them. And they're doing all the religious things in the world. But they've neglected the things that really, really matter. And so Micah reduces the old, the, all the Old Testament down to this. He goes, Micah, in Micah 6 verse 8, he goes, God has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
You ever ask that question? Like, God, what do you really want from me? Mike is gonna spell it out. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Like, let's not make this so complicated, but the fact that you need to live justly with other people, the fact that you need to love mercy, that matters as you walk humbly with your God. Have you ever this? When you look at the Old Testament, you'll find that God takes two different cities and treats them completely differently. In the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're incredibly wicked and violent and hateful towards one another. And he destroys the city. You take the city of Babel. They love one another. They're just idolatrous. He doesn't destroy them. He just separates them. Could it, could it be that God actually really, really cares about how we treat other people? Here's a thought. About 30 years before Jesus, there was a famous, famous rabbi named Halil. And there's this interaction in their writings that they recorded. And the Bible says, or not the Bible, but the Talmud says that this man comes to Halil and says, I will convert to Judaism if you can teach me the whole law while I stand on one feet, one foot. And Halil just smiles at him and says, sure. This is what he says to him. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Jesus comes along 30 years later in his famous Sermon on the Mount. He actually says the same thing, inverted and more challenging even. So what we refer to as the golden rule. He says, you know how to treat other people? See, see, Halil makes it simple. He's like, hey, it, it, you don't want people lying about you. Don't lie to them. You don't want people to punch you in the face. You don't punch people in the face. Whatever you would not want to be done to you, you don't do to others. Jesus says the opposite and harder. He says, as a matter of fact, the way that you want to be treated by other people, I want you to treat people that way. Not only do I not want you to lie about them, how would you want people to talk to you? You'd want them to encourage you and celebrate you. That's what I want you to do. Because how you treat people matters. We overlook this. See, when Jesus said, what's the most important thing in all of Scripture? He goes to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. What matters most to God is that you and I become dealers of mercy. That, that in all of our doing, in all of our living, that we become incredibly merciful. Let, let me, how many of you are parents out there? I'll talk to you real quick here. You're not a parent. You'll see this one day, hopefully. You might not make the connection. As a parent, think about this. How awesome is it when your kids say, I love you, Dad, or I love you, Mom? That, that's pretty cool, huh? That's, yeah. You know what I've discovered? There's something even more incredible, I have three kids, when I hear my son tell my daughter that he loves her. Have you ever noticed the difference in that? Now let me ask you a question. If your kid totally loves you all day and then, and then like constantly like hurt and picked on your sister, your, your, his little sister all day, like how would that make you feel? You're constantly frustrated, aren't you? But when you hear him or her say to their sibling, I love you, it melts your heart in a completely new and different way. I gotta say, I think it's better. You're not worried. If he can love his sister and his sister can love him, you know they love you. That's not the issue. I'm trying to get them to love each other. That's the hard part. And this is where God is looking at you saying, as God has given you a new beginning in life, a new position of mercy, I need you to become dealers of that same mercy. I need you to become agents of mercy. I need you to people that, that obviously dishing out the mercy to everybody else. But yet when I look at my own life and I look at the life of people around us, I find that in Christianity today, many of us have a very much vertical relationship with God. Many times it is very personal. Sometimes it is very private. Let me help you real quick here. Your relationship with God is never meant to be private. Personal, yes. 
private never. If not, we would never share our faith or invite other people to church or help other people out. Our, our faith is not meant to be private. So I don't want you to go into your workplace thinking, I gotta keep this private. No, I want you to love other people and become a dealer and an agent of mercy. So we, we become so vertical in our relationship with God that we've lost sight of what God really cares about once we come into our new beginning and new position of mercy. He wants us to become merciful to everyone around us. Here's the question that I think we all need to ask ourselves. Where is it that I have desired mercy for myself but wanted justice for someone else? You ever live like that? You ever live like you're so wanting God to get them? You're so mad. You hope karma's real and they, you hope they reap it. You hope they, you hope they get theirs. Well, they deserved that. You ever, you ever live like that? Well, I hope they, well, they really need to. Well, God's gonna get them. He's like, we, we have these ways. Here's where we need to become dealers and agents of mercy. If we are truly dealers of mercy, number one is this, then revenge is off the table. Revenge is off the table. The Bible says that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We need to stop living a life where we, we, we hope they get theirs or we devise a plan by which they get theirs. Number two is this, is forgiveness is now a quick option. How many of us, we want forgiveness for ourselves? We're slow to deal it out to other people. Number three is this, is we will judge mercifully. You ever notice, hey, sometimes, sometimes we're not revenge people, Sometimes we'll even say that we forgive, but we have the most critical spirit. We got a critical comment about everything and about everybody and you know, every, every person in the world, we can nitpick all of their issues except our own. You ever notice that? We can point out everybody else's flaw, we can point out everybody else's issues, but we never can see ours. So you know what we do? This is how we do our, we judge ourselves according to our intentions, don't we? Well, I know I made a mistake, but I'm a good person. I have a good heart. I was trying to do a good thing. I mean, deep down, I mean, that's not who I am. I wasn't, I mean, that's not. And yet we judge everybody else purely by their actions. Number four is this, is we will be slow to get angry. We will be slow to get angry. It's, it's so easy. Every time you find yourself having the urge to get angry, I want you to take a step back and say, is this an area where I need to extend mercy? Is it really that big of a deal? If I had done this, how would I want them to respond to me? Because again, it's so easy to fly off the handle, to get mad, to make that judgment, to want them to get theirs, and to get angry so quickly. See, again, talking about this idea, so in the book of 1 John, John says this, he goes, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, God's not in your heart, and your life is full of darkness. Like, meaning like, the way that you treat other people is intrinsically connected to how your relationship with God is. And you cannot separate the two. You cannot in one breath say, I love God, but then in another breath, be hurtful to other people. It is impossible. John says, if you say that you love God, but you still hate your brother, you have darkness in your heart. Number whatever, gossip is not an option. Gossip is not an option. If we are to be dealers and agents of mercy, Again, if we were to treat other people the way that we want to be treated, like gossip is not an option. Like I don't want you dishing out everybody's business and dishing out all the juicy and all the facts and all the, well, did you know, did, did you hear? And then let's pray for them, did you know? Like we, we don't want to go there. What if we said we want to be purely dealers of mercy because the mercy that God has given us 
Number next one, compassion is a must. And lastly, we will err on the side of mercy. Like, like listen, listen. If you're gonna err and you've got a situation, could be a relational conflict, could be a family dilemma, could be a business issue, could be what, if you're gonna make a mistake, I want you to err on the side of mercy because life's too short. Life's too short to push them away from God. Life is too short to have a bitter heart. Life is too short to get angry and harbor unforgiveness. Life is too short. You have received too much mercy. He took it all. He wiped your slate completely clean with no questions asked. Where is it in my life that I want God to forgive me, but I don't want to forgive them? Where is it in my life that I want mercy, but I ain't giving it out? And God, could you help us to become a little bit more merciful? Last scripture, and I'll close here. The Bible says in James chapter two, he says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, the law of grace, the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. Everybody say that with me. Everybody say mercy triumphs over judgment. I'll say it again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want you to know that God wants to give you a new beginning. He wants to move you from a position of being the one that receives the penalty for all of our mistakes and all of our wrongdoings and all of our sin and move you into a position of mercy. He wants you to become born again. But as we become born again and as we follow Jesus with all of our life, he wants us to become not just recipients of mercy, but givers of mercy as well. Last story, my, when I, I, I was a kid, I think I mentioned last week that I was a terrible child. Um, I think my parents considered putting me up for adoption when I was of much great age. I was so bad as a kid that when my parents were in any destination and they both had their own vehicles, they would fight over who got to keep my brother and who got stuck with me. By the way, why do you tell your kids that when they get older? Like, why, why do I need to know that? Um, I, was, I, was a, I was a really bad kid. I was just a terrible kid. And, and, and I'm sure not all of it was my fault. Um, And I got spanked a lot, probably not enough, but I got spanked a lot. And, and I remember a very, very specific moment that, that I had done something really, really bad. I won't get into the details. Save that for another day. But my brother was with me. And although he didn't do it, he was there with me and he wasn't helping me, but he was there with me. And he knew all of hell was going to be unleashed on my booty. And... Um, and I had devised plans throughout my years as a kid. I had learned that like if you wear multiple pairs of underwear, that that softens the blow. I'd also learned that if you put two wallets in your back pocket, that that will help as well. But this one was going to be a doozy. And, and, and he knew that I'd been in so much trouble lately that it would probably be worse than normal. If you know what I'm talking about? Like it had built up. And I remember that day my brother lied and told my parents that he had done it. Because he knew that he wouldn't get in that much trouble and that I would be in a whole lot of trouble. And my brother got spanked that day for something that I had done. And at the time, I was sad, but I was very, very happy. <laughs> I was sad because my brother got a spanking, but I was very, very happy because I didn't get mine. And I think back on that story and I think about 
Jesus and I think about the one who entered into eternity and was perfect, was without sin. And he took all these little brothers who were awful little kids and all these little sisters who were sinful little sisters. And in one moment, he takes on all the sin of all of humanity, past, present, and future. He says, I got this. I can take this. I'll take the justice. I'll take the judgment so that you can receive the mercy. I want you to tell you in here today that that Jesus absolutely loves you and wants to give you a new beginning and wants to put you into a position of mercy. I want to go ahead and tell you that he has already paid your debt if you will let him. It's already been done. All you have to do is accept it and receive it. All you have to do is just take a step of faith and trust towards Jesus and let Jesus work out all the rest. And in doing so, you will move from a position of judgment to a position of mercy. But in light of that mercy, God wants you to become merciful to those around you. Let's pray this morning. I'd like us to take a moment and just pray on our own for just a moment and begin to think about all the things that God has forgiven us of and to remember of what God has brought us out of and remember what God has done in us and what God has taken us from and healed us of and moved us towards and where we might be without him if God had not been in our life, what, what that might look like right now, what, what level of carnage and devastation might be around us had we not found Jesus and for some of you in here today, some of you in here today and you might be away from God and you know you're broken I'm telling you, Jesus is here to give you a new beginning. Some of you are in here today and you thought, no, I did pretty good at life and everything is pretty good and I'm pretty smart and I'm pretty successful. I'm telling you that you're missing something. I'm still telling you that there is still something so much greater that you're not even aware of. But if you'll take a step towards Jesus, I think he'll begin to show you how much greater life could be with him. Some of you are in here today and you say, Todd, I already know that I've been given a position of mercy, but, but your issue today is not the mercy that you've been given, it's the mercy that you're not giving out. And if you're in here today and you say, Todd, that's me, I, I know Jesus loves me and I know I'm forgiven, but I am harsh with other people, I am critical with other people, I am angry with other people, then today is your day to take a time and to pray and, and to repent and say, God, help me to love people. Help me to see people as you see people. God, help me to become more merciful. Wherever you're at in your walk and relationship with God and your relationship with other people, now is the time to pray. Now is the time to ask God. First Peter chapter one, verse three says, praise be to God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I encourage you, you've been given a new birth. His death gave you a new birth. His death gave you a new life, a new beginning, a new position, a position of mercy. And so God, today we thank you God, we thank you. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You paid a price that you didn't owe. We owed a price that we could never pay. And for that, we're grateful today. God, for that, we're thankful today. 
And God, in light of your great mercy for us, God, help us to become a more merciful person. God, we repent today of the anger and the criticism and the gossip or the neglect, the lack of compassion. God, we ask you, God, help us to become so fully aware of how good you are to us so that we can be merciful to others, God. God, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all said, amen.